0: Please go ahead, Nathalie.
1: Hello, Tom. Um, I have a question about the family system that we um, share in, in our experience in this PMR. So when an IUC starts an experience in our PMR, is there any connection to the family members it is burned into, especially about the fears which will appear to them In families, often themes show up in patterns like violence, addiction, depression or other mental illness. I heard about something like ancestor healing, which would mean that we are born into systems of fears which are connected to our forefathers. And by healing these themes in this experience, we can heal it in our family system. Um, In the same way, it would even show up a bigger responsibility to our children to help them grow up. Somehow, it sounds pretty logical that breaking out of the circle means always something is changing. But could you give a higher perspective to this? And do you think that this is true? Does our children have to fight with the same struggle of deep fears that we do?
2: Okay, there's a lot of different perspectives on this. I'll try to pull them all together. Um, It is true that we as parents do tend to pass our fears along to our children because our children see us as role models. So if we are terrified of water, you know, we're terrified of swimming, and we can't even get in water, you know, up past our waist before we start to panic, then they see us do that, they will tend to be that way as well. So we can pass fears along to our children. We do pass fears along. Um, so our our children do tend to represent us. And, of course, grand, your your parents passed fears along to you, And your grandparents passed their fears along to their, you know, to their children, which were your parents. So in a way, we do pass these fears, you know, on to our children. Because our children, let's say, taking back to the the fear of water or the fear of being in water and drowning, you know, the, the, the children looked up to us. We, the parents, are almost like gods. We know everything. We can do everything. We're all powerful to them. And if we're terrified of water, then they should be terrified of water too, because water must be very scary. If it scares my mom or scares my dad, then it's a pretty scary thing. I need to, I need to be wary. So they take those cues from their parents. As far as the, the what you bring in as an incarnation, yes, you start wherever it is you left off. If in a past life, you were, you know, terror, something was, you know, was a, a fear of yours. If, it, if you look at that fear as a very general thing, say the fear of not being good enough, fear of being inadequate, a real general thing like that, then that fear may also be in your next incarnation because that fear kind of represents who you are. You know, it's part of you at the core level, so that's part of your consciousness. Your consciousness contains fear. But it may not express itself in the same way, whereas the, the, the character in the previous incarnation may, exp- may have expressed that fear in a way of uh, they felt bad about who they were, so they compensated by being a bully. You may get that same fear, and you may decide to express that as being a shrinking violet. You know, so they seem like they're very opposite things, but they basically come out of a similar fear. So from, from incarnation to incarnation, the expression of the fear will probably be unique to that incarnation. It kind of depends. It's a mixture here of what you bring with you and the environment that you, you bring to it yourself. You know, the environment that you interact with that environment may make you see the, the shrinking violet as a better choice than the bully because in this particular new incarnation you're only five foot two and only weigh you know 115 pounds so being a bully is going to be a little tough in that situation so the shrinking violet may be the better choice and maybe you're an introvert which makes that easier too but if you're an extrovert and you're big then being the bully maybe would be a better choice so the environment comes in and and helps you express that fear that you carry over uh, but now that's a general fear. If you in a past life were terrified of spiders, you had a phobia, that doesn't mean you'll be terrified of spiders again. You may have a propensity for phobias because that reflects your general core of your being, but that could come out in any sense, you know, it may not it may not actually even turn into a phobia. It may be something else. So, the specifics don't translate from lifetime to lifetime, but the general things do translate from lifetime to lifetime and We do indeed take our fears and our children end up being afraid of the same things we're afraid of just because if we're afraid of them, then they must be awesomely scary, so that tends to get that tends to get passed on. But, of course, it doesn't have to be passed on. It's not like we're doomed to keep passing these fears along generation to generation. We can grow up and change and get rid of fears, and then we don't pass them along. We can even get our intellect to intercede and say, well, I'm afraid of water, so I never learned to swim, but when my kids turn five years old, I'm putting them in swimming lessons, and after that, they're going to go on swim team and they're going to learn to swim like fish because my fear of water has caused me a lot of problem and makes it so that if I do ever get dumped in the water, I'm out of luck. If I can't swim, I'll just panic and drown. Whereas if I knew how to swim, I could save my life. So it's a good thing for a child to learn. So even though you yourself are still afraid of water, you would send your children. So you can stop passing these fears along if you understand you have the fear. You can just stop it. And, of course, for the parent who has that fear of water, they should not go in with their child to the swimming lessons. They should drop their child off to the swimming lesson and go someplace else because otherwise they will make it very difficult for their child as they sit there totally tense, you know, white-knuckled sitting in the bleachers. Their child will pick up all that fear, so they need to just drop them off and go someplace else. So we can change it. We don't have to keep passing them on. But in some ways, we we do. They get passed from generation to generation. And one can see that. Now, because the mind leads and the body follows, if you have a, peer, a person who's very fearful, they can rearrange their central nervous system to express that fear more easily. Let's say you tend to have a, a negative attitude towards yourself. You don't like yourself very well then you can modify your brain chemistry such that you don't produce enough neurotransmitters so that you feel kind of depressed. Well, not liking yourself and being depressed just go together. So your your fear can change your body in a way that supports the fear. You see, again, intention modifies future probability. And if what's in your mind is I'm inadequate, then you're, the future probability will change your body to express that inadequacy. And it'll and say not enough neurotransmitters, not enough. Uh, um, uh, forgot the word now, but anyway, so it'll change you to express who you are. So there's lots of ways that we, lots of things we come in with, but also lots of ways to outgrow. So don't feel stuck with anything. Certainly don't feel stuck about passing it on to children. You can control that, even just from your intellect. You can control that and not pass it on to your children if you try hard enough, or at least you maybe you can control that. But as always, focus on getting rid of the fear because that ends it. You get rid of that fear and you outgrow it. Now the next time, you won't have that. That won't be one of your lessons anymore. You have outgrown it. You don't go back and pick it up again just because you used to have it. You've gone, you're done with it now. And from then on, every time you incarnate, you don't have that problem because you've dealt with it and you're done with it. So that's the whole point. We want to get done with these things that cause us pain, that cause us frustration and challenges and make us struggle. If we can get rid of all that stuff, then that makes the next time easier and more fun and easier and more fun. And pretty soon we're just little bundles of joy going from lifetime to lifetime, you know, smiling at people and doing good things because we have gotten rid of our fear. So that's where we're trying to go. But to be up to our eyebrows in fear, that is normal. Most of us are up to our eyebrows in fear, dealing with the things we come in with that's don't feel that that's a, that's a negative. Oh, I'm so messed up. You know, don't feel like that at all. You're in the same boat as everybody else. As far as having to deal with your fears goes, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's what we're here for. That's the point. So did I, that was, it was a little long of a question. I'm not sure that I got your, your, uh, do I think it's true, and do children have to fight with the same struggle? They don't have to, but they often do if we pass it on to them. But they don't have to, no. And if we get rid of that fear, then it's not likely we'll pass it on to them. Matter of fact, we'll pass on to them the behavior that doesn't have that fear, doesn't show that fear, express it. Yeah,
1: what's um um a- a kind of uh, a part of the first question. It's like I had seen I didn't get it so clear in my question, but um, I'd also like to know that for example in our medical system we call um, it like vulnerability that um, if one person in the family already has to um, deal with depression and then it will appear again and again and like it would be Made up with, uh, the, the genes and like it would be made up in the DNA, but it's, it's not like I wanna, I wanna <clears throat> think that this is true. Is there something like, um, these, um, I, I called it fierce, but in fact it's not fierce, it's more like these, um, illnesses that can appear more often in a family because there's something, it's um, like a, it's already centered in this family and uh, you are, when you're born into this family system, you are pre, uh, you you are, the possibility to get it, it's more higher. I don't know Mm -hmm. if I get the point right now, what I want to say
2: yeah I think I understand that yes there are some some illnesses some illnesses of uh even of the central nervous system are inheritable they are genetic that's a possibility um, many things many proclivities are genetic, but it doesn't mean that you're trapped with your genetics just because you come from a family where say depression was common or you had a mother or father who was depressed and maybe a grandfather who was depressed and you see that that's in the family, it doesn't mean you have to be depressed. You can modify that genetics. You're not stuck with your genetics. Your genetics are not a a thing that you can't change. Your intent modifies future probability and it can change you physically as well. It can modify your central nervous system. It can modify a lot of your physical system just because you have an intention. So you can break that cycle. Now, you may have a proclivity toward it, which means it might be easier for you to become depressed. If you had things that made you feel negative towards yourself in your life or whatever, it may be easier for you to grab hold of that depression thing because of a proclivity toward it. But it doesn't mean you have to become it you can you can change that genetic and sometimes things are strongly genetic you know there's a there's a real clear genetic path and sometimes they're weakly genetic and when they're weakly genetic it's almost like you're passing attitudes along rather than genes attitudes tend to run in families just like we're saying if the If the grandparents were always fighting with each other and then the parents, you know, their children tend to fight with their spouses and then their children. Well, that's that tends to be learned behavior passed on. It looks like it's flowing in a family, but it's not necessarily genetic. It just looks like, you know, and they may say, well, your grandfather and your father had, had this, so you're doomed. But not so. That may be just behavior passed along. Not genetic at all. But there are some things that are genetic. But typically, the, the genes don't force you into a particular problem, as it is they make it more likely that you'll have that problem. And if you use your intent, you can make it less likely that you will have that problem. So you can counterbalance it with your intent. And all in all, don't feel burdened by the past. The past is done. You're here and you can change yourself. You can change things. You can change your physiology. You can change your brain chemistry. You can change your behavioral patterns that you picked up, you know, from your mother Females tend to pick up behavioral patterns from their mother, and males tend to pick up behavioral patterns from their father. That's a tendency. So your mother picked up behavioral patterns from her mother and so on. But you can can short-circuit those. You can not pass those on. If you have the intent to change, that intent will dominate everything else. So don't feel burdened by a by a past that has a lot of people with problems in it. You can be easily the shining star that doesn't have any problems at all, or learn how to get rid of all those problems, and then your children won't have them either.
1: Yes, and that's that's a very interesting part at the end. So, how could I, may even save my children for getting these? Um, yeah. These patterns, yeah. or something like that. This is yeah.
2: The best thing you can
3: going best, around.
2: Yeah, the best thing you can do as a parent is to get your own consciousness straight, to get your own head put on right. You know, to lower your own fear. If you do that, that'll optimize the life that your kids have. Because if you change it, let's say you did get some kind of genetic proclivity to. You know, be depressed. Okay. Well, if you did get that, but you had an intention and you didn't go there, you kind of felt yourself being nudged in that direction, but you said, no, I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to be like mom or grandma or whoever. And you're not. So you basically change your own biochemistry. When you have children, your genetics now are changed. Your biochemistry's changed. Your children are going to be more like you, not like their grandmother or their great grandmother. You see, so you are not just a a being that passes on the stuff you get from the past. You get to change that stuff and then pass it on changed. So if you just don't succumb to it because you have. You know, you're strong enough to do that. You just don't go with the flow, but you say, No, I'm not going to go that path, and you don't go that path, and your children now will carry your genetics, which is somebody that didn't go that path. You change your neurotransmitter numbers, your serotonin, that's the word I was thinking of. You got plenty of serotonin now. It's not it's not uh too little. So Yes, you can stop it, and then their children are less likely to have it. so you can break that cycle. Yes. it's It's doable just with with your intent. So there's no doom in genetics. Genetics are just a piece of the puzzle. We can modify our own genetics with our intent now there's there's limits to which we can do that, but we can to a great extent modify genetics. Read some uh, some books by Bruce Lipton. He talks about he talks about that all the time about modifying your you're not you're not a slave of your of your genetics. You can modify those those uh, genetics.
1: I even have one of his books here, but I didn't get the time to read it, but thank you again.
3: Mm-hmm. I will read it.
0: All right, Tom, the other questions are coming from people who have submitted on the forum but are not here, and one of them is Mario Miliones. so I'm going to read his question. This is from Mario. The materialistic deterministic model of reality posed by scientists tell us that consciousness is just a product of our brains. And we don't really have a free will. It's just an illusion. If they only knew the position of every molecule in every given moment, they could then predict what was going to happen. So determinism. I'm one of the people that thinks and feels that this is not a credible model of reality. I know I'm conscious and I make choices. I experience consequences and I learn or don't learn as I go along. We all experience this. It seems so obvious. I can't comprehend how these people can deny it. Clearly, scientists are intelligent people, but I don't understand how they accept a model that doesn't explain the fact that we see that all living beings, not just human beings, clearly are acting, learning, surviving, and evolving on this earth. How can it be if there really isn't any point to anything? Is consciousness just a byproduct of the brain? if it was, then why do we see this driving force in all life forms? There shouldn't be any evolution if there's no point to anything. Wouldn't everything be just random? Have I missed something in their argument or not understood them properly?
2: No, you've pretty well got it, uh, got it right. That is the way it is. <laughs> but when you, when you ask the question, how? You know, how could they come to this conclusion? Well, your point is that the conclusion seems to rationally be untrue. We experience choice, we experience change, we experience evolution, and we know that the changes that we make, that we can make changes and have those changes take effect, that we can change ourselves, which would, you know, say that uh, they must be wrong. Otherwise, we could never change ourselves, and we know we can. But all of your arguments are rational. Belief is not rational. When somebody believes something, a rational argument is not able to crack that belief. First, they'd have to be open-minded to that belief not being true if they're not open-minded to that belief not being true, then any amount of information, data, experience, or other facts won't compute for them. They'll hear it, and they'll realize that it must be mistaken. It has to be mistaken. It has to be wrong. So they just throw it out. Now, in the, in the strongest cases of that, it's just called denial, right? You just deny things because they are they are crosswise with your beliefs. So that's how it happens. Yes, scientists are clearly intelligent people, and yes, they have lives, and yes, they are conscious, and yes, they make choices, and by those choices, they change things, and they realize all of that, but that all falls on the opposite side of logic from their belief that this is a material Reality, that this is a deterministic reality, and you have to have a deterministic reality if it's a material reality. So if that's your fundamental belief, then everything to the contrary must be an illusion by definition. And you don't even have to investigate it because you know, by definition, it's an illusion. So they don't really think about it or investigate it or spend much time worrying over it because they already know the answer. If it's contrary with my belief, it must be an illusion. It's just that simple. So why say, why am I going to go out and study this illusion that people are having or even think about it much? When you know already deep down inside that it is, has to be, must be an illusion. Okay, so that's how all believers are. And it doesn't matter whether it's a religious belief, a scientific belief, a belief in their, you know, a belief that they are uh, insecure and inadequate. You know, people believe they're inadequate, that they're not good enough. It's just a belief. And all the data that comes to them, to the contrary, they pass off as not being meaningful. And all the data that comes to them to support the fact that they feel inadequate, ah, that's the data, that's the proof. They've got it. The other data, they just, no, can't be true. It's an anomaly. Oh, it's not like that. That's just an illusion. So that's the way all belief is, no matter what your belief is about. If you have a belief, you tend to pay attention to the data that confirms it and pass off everything that doesn't confirm it as an illusion, as not being real being somehow misunderstood. So that's how intelligent people like scientists can have a life every day making choices, changing changing their path, deciding to become a physicist or deciding to become a chemist or deciding to become a you know a social worker, and they made that hard choice and now here they are as a physicist, but an entirely different life if they'd chosen to be a social worker. Uh, well that was that choice was just an illusion. Because it conflicts with my belief. That may seem incredible, but that is just the nature of belief. So you cannot fight belief with facts or with rationality. Rationality doesn't work against belief. Now, if there's some open-mindedness in there, then facts can pry in and make a crack and eventually change things. But if they were open minded, then it probably wouldn't be a belief. They wouldn't see it as, you know, people who have beliefs see their beliefs as facts. That's the nature of a belief. So they don't see their belief as a belief, they see their belief as a fact. So that's why, yeah, it seems odd. You know, the very people who are supposed to, to be skeptical of everything and only look at the facts, have a belief, you know, at the center of their own, of their own, uh, their own science. Well, most people have beliefs at the center of their being someplace or another. And most professionals have beliefs at the basis of their, you know, their ideas, it's just, Kind of common. We're up to our eyebrows in fear. We're up to our eyebrows in beliefs and self-centeredness. It's just the way we are. So it doesn't matter if you're a scientist or if you're you know, a fundamentalist. It all works the same way. Belief is belief. Or maybe you're just some individual that believes you're inadequate. Belief is a belief. Every day, life will confirm your fear that you're inadequate. And every day, all the things that demonstrate that you're not... Are thrown away as inconsequential.
0: Well, Tom, um, there's been a there's a practical side to this too. I mean, this argument has been going on for a hundred years. This is what your experiments are trying to uh, to show: that consciousness is at the root of reality, from the original Copenhagen experiment. Um, but we have known scientists who had have admitted that um, their colleagues will come to them in confidence and say you know I I believe what you're doing these scientists who have a big picture who whose experiments um, in consciousness uh, is is very very well documented and they'll say you know I do I do believe in what you're doing and I do know that this is how it is that consciousness has this role in our reality, but I have my career to look at. Some mm-hmm. of them are vested into, um, you know, maybe universities that wouldn't back the consciousness idea, as you discovered when you tried to get the any mm-hmm. uh, university to do your physics experiments. And then there are some of those brave scientists who have a solid career in um, say the medical field like Brian Weiss, uh top-notch uh head of psychiatry at Mount Sinai, who have to leave what they've always done and go with something that works better. Once what Brian found that he did hip when he did hypnosis, which was part of his method, that he discovered past lives of people, was helping them more the drugs they were prescribing these are the very brave souls who go forward with the truth and these are the true scientists um but your experiments are going to be very important because of what they're showing with this hundred year old argument and maybe you can tell people a little bit about you know those two conflicting things and to to, just to add a little bit to it
2: Mm. Well, if you're in a group of people and they all share a belief, like most scientists and not just scientists, but doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs, you know, most people who are left brain dominant believe that our world is materialistic and that materialism is the right answer. But they believe that because their parents probably believe that and their society believes that and their culture believes that. So you can pick up a lot of beliefs just out of the culture. And when you live in a culture, be it a culture of scientists or a culture within a religion or just the culture in general, when, you, when you're in a culture and a belief is, is a given truth, then to, to step outside that, you know, to step out of that box takes a fair amount of courage. And to step out of that box tends to gather the wrath and the displeasure of those people that are still in that box. Because you obviously have shown yourself to be incompetent and stupid because you don't hold that same belief that they do. You see, so that's just the nature of the way things are. But you know, there always will be people who will have an open mind and look at the facts and change their mind, who aren't committed to beliefs. There's always those people around. And they will always go off on their own. They will think out of the box and go to work out of the box and do whatever they do. Now, in a way, you might think that, gee, it would be better if we could kind of turn around and grow up more quickly. You know, we've been, like you say, a hundred years on just this one particular belief, which is is talking about, uh, you know, double-slit quantum mechanics, that sort of thing. But it goes back more than that, you know, The, the belief in materialism. Is, a, is fairly deep. goes back to Newton, I guess, in his big clockwork universe. So anyway, um, there will always be people who will take exception. And the system is set up. I shouldn't say the system is set up. The system has evolved to the point that it's hard to bump the system out of its rut. It's hard to make the system go off in a different direction, to make people, to make all the physicists, to make all you know people who are fundamentalists in a religion, whatever we're talking about. It's hard to change that. And that's probably a good thing. It would probably not be such a good world if every time somebody came up with a new idea, Oh, look, we should all turn right here. We should all go off and do that. You know, the whole society got up and ran off in that other direction. That probably would be a very bad thing. So societies are such that new ideas have to climb a pretty steep mountain, a pretty steep wall of disbelief before they can get inside before they become the new normal you see and in a way that's good because that gives the whole system of ideas some inertia such so that we don't chase after every new idea or hairbrain scheme or something else that comes along we tend to resist that and we like things the way they are and we want things to stay the way they are because we're comfortable with that and it isn't until the new idea forces itself into our consciousness because it just is a better idea and it just works better and it makes a you know, it's a better explanation. And decades later, the society will change, accept a new idea and that becomes now the, the new normal or the new belief, Because most people just either believe it or don't believe it. Most people don't think for themselves that much that they're going to go down to first principles and derive it all for themselves. They're just going to say, well, that's what the scientists say, so it must be the way it is. So belief just spreads around. So anyway, it's good. It's good that we have this inertia. It means it takes longer. Any new idea has to struggle against the tide has to swim upstream for a while, you know Albert Einstein was told a lot of nasty things when he first came out with relativity about what a you know silly idea it was, and of course, not all that was impossible and couldn't happen and Of course eventually it became gospel it It is now the you know accepted and so on with all new ideas. So that they have to fight their way to the top is a good thing. Now, just how hard they have to fight, I'm not so sure that's a good thing all the time. You know, it seems like we have to fight awfully hard, you know, to get to, to, get to the top of the pile these days. But, you know, that's because our lives are so short. And we think that if it doesn't happen in a couple of months or a couple of years, then it's way too long. But in the bigger picture the good ideas will always float to the top and the bad ideas that are wrong will always sink to the bottom. And in the long run, it'll work out well. The, the, the new ideas, the out of the box thinking will make the box bigger and the box keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what we, that's what we want.
0: I think Tom, um, it comes down to with these scientists that I've mentioned that are, are realizing that consciousness, as you say, is at the root of our reality. Those like uh, Dr. Bruce Gregson, Dr. Donald Hoffman, these are 50 years of research people. You know, in, I don't know how long in the case of uh, Donald Hoffman. But it all comes down to your, it's not your experience, it's not your truth. Now, they've seen and experienced mm-hmm. their they, they either have, they have results from their experiments or they have directly experienced it themselves. So that's what it comes down to. And I, it leads me into this next question. Um, it's not your experience. It's not your truth is what Brian has submitted as a question. Um, he's giving a little background. He's very left-brained, left-brained and wanting to connect to the LCS. That's this is a very long question. I will try to shorten it, but I don't want to leave anything out. Um, basically, his question is, you know, does the LCS hear requests to connect with it, even if they are at the intellectual or left brain level? And then he goes on to give a little background. I think I've tried everything I possibly can to make some sort of connection with the LCS. This is a question that recurs a lot and you've talked about a lot. I can't think of anything more important than knowing our purpose, that there is more to reality than the mainstream materialistic culture would have us believe. I just needed some verification. And he quotes, if it's not your experience, it's not your truth. That's your quote. I was far more optimistic several years ago when I asked you about this in an MBT forum email. I still have the information, as it was good information. At the time, you indicated the LCS won't connect with your intellect, but is trying to help us and un- connect when you are coming from the being level. Uh, since I had experienced something like a vibrational state years ago while meditating, I figured it would come in time. Since I'd experienced something like a vibrational state years ago while meditating, I figured it would come in time. And I just needed to keep practicing and be patient. That was years ago, and I still have nothing evidential. I've listened to all of your week-long intensives posted to YouTube. Um, I enjoy them. Thank you for making them available. They add to the integrity of your message as you don't change, like so many other spiritual teachers do. I've listened to all your answers on the LCS Connections Um, A few months ago, it came up again. And when you said it was basically down to taking it seriously, I was a little surprised when I found myself getting triggered. I don't get triggered much these days, but that got me. I don't think there's much uh, I, I take more seriously. But if I am pulling myself and not being serious, what harm could it do for the LCS to help out with a little information, even if I'm full of fear and ego? Um, that's that is basically his his question Uh, some other things I've tried just so you get a sense of how important it is and how seriously I'm taking it is that in the recent months I've come at it from different angles so I'd say fine LCS uh, puts me in a dream if my intellect can't process it Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing so he's done a lot of research and he's Acknowledge that there are some people out there risking their reputations, going public with their claims of higher consciousness. Jude Caravan. Now, Jude Caravan, we nearly met up with in mm-hmm. uh, Lumley when we did the immersive there. Uh, she was very eager to talk with you and there was a conflict in schedule and we couldn't do that. So... They, are, they also uh, reiterate that connecting through an intermediary is not the same as direct connection and that it needs to be your personal experience. So uh, that is also in, in your advice. Um, he goes on to tell different ways he has tried to convince the LCS to let him as a left brain receive some kind of information. So we go back to the question, does the LCS – hear my request to connect, even if they are at the intellectual level or left brain level, and if not, you know, what kind of advice at this point can you give Brian?
2: Well, Brian, I can feel your frustration. You want to connect. You've tried to connect. You've done everything. uh, You're willing to take a sign, you know, a dream, anything, and you're just not getting that connection. One of the problems may be, I don't know exactly what, what, you know, the particular problem is with, with you making this connection. But one of the problems may well be that you're trying too hard. And in trying too hard, you're,
3: uh, your intellect gets in the way
2: having a having a, an idea that it is possible that something is you know that something is possible to do can also be important if you have an idea that particularly after you've tried so many things and it's and you're beginning to believe it's impossible just from your experience that makes it more impossible. So your long list of failures makes another failure more likely. None of this is helpful to you yet. (laughs) We'll see if I can come across something that's actually helpful to you. Um, When we try too hard, we block it. If we, at a deeper level, if at an intellectual level, we say, oh, I'm open, I'm ready. But at a deeper level, we're not so sure that can block it. When I was at a course for training people to see without eyes, it found out the only people who could see without eyes could see without eyes because they believed that they were cheating, even though they weren't. Okay, But if they thought they were, that gave them justification for being able to do it. So a little bit of light would leak in around her mask around the edge or something. And they'd see that light and they'd say, Oh, okay. That light's getting in, that's how I'm seeing. They weren't technical enough to realize that little bit of light that bounces in and around the edges can't carry an image. It's unfocusable. It can't carry, there's no, in, there's no information on that light other than that it's light. So, being a techie, that wasn't good justification for me because I knew that that wouldn't help. But not being a techie, you think, oh, there's a little light coming around now. That's probably how I'm doing this. That allowed you to do it. In other words, that took the block away. So we found that the people who could do this more readily were the people who could get around the block of believing that it was impossible. How could you read in the dark? How could you read without light? Obviously impossible. And it wasn't that they didn't believe that people were doing it. Matter of fact, everybody there had seen the videos, had uh, was perfectly aware that it could be done and other people did it. So it's not that their intellect wasn't on board with the possibility, but something deeper inside of them felt it was impossible. And because at that level, it was impossible. But if you could play some kind of little trick where they really couldn't see at all, but they thought they could, oh, look, you've got a little peephole in your mask. See that little dot of light? This is what they tell the children. See that little dite, that little dot of light that's that uh, that you can see in there? well, that dot of light is probably just you know after vision of your eyes after putting the mask on, but you say that's you know that, that's a little hole in your mask. Think of that as a little hole in your mask now make it bigger and make it bigger now you can see through it, and sure enough, you know, with that idea that that was a hole in their mask, that was enough to justify the possibility of it all. And then the children could do that because children don't have that same level of, of uh you know, conviction about the nature of reality that other that adults have. So it was much easier for children to do this because they weren't so convinced that it was impossible in their world. The world's full of magic. You know, an automobile is magic. You know, all kinds of things are magic in a, in a child's world. So they uh, they were able to do it. So I suspect that there is, though it's not in your intellect, it's not necessarily in your control, there's a belief somewhere that it's unlikely, that it's impossible, or not even that it's unlikely, but maybe even that it's just impossible for you. And that can block it, block it entirely. So it seems like, at least with the learning to uh, read and see without your eyes, the key ingredient the key ingredient, is to be able to justify that you can do it in your mind. If you can make yourself think that, oh, here's how I'm doing it. All right, I've got a rational justification for it. A little bit of light seeping under my mask, and that's how I'm able to see. Then you can see. But that's not how people see. I was in that course, and I know with that mask on, light came in around the edges, but that light doesn't allow you to see anything. Like I say, that light has bounced back and forth between your skin and the foam and your skin before it finally gets into your eye. There's no direct passage for light to get in there. It just bounces in. And once light takes a bounce, it loses its information. In other words, the wall behind you, you cannot see it, even though there are millions of photons bouncing off that wall behind you hitting the wall in front of you and then bouncing into your eyes so they have the information from the back wall they hit the front wall then they go to your eyes but you don't see the back wall back wall's gone all you see is the front wall all the information about the back wall that they just hit before they hit the front wall and went into your eyes is gone light that bounces around doesn't isn't something you can focus with a lens and and see you see So, you've tried all the things that you can try, and you've been patient, and it's just not working. I suspect that it would be more likely to work if you just gave up. If you just said, all right, I've tried, it'll happen if it happens, it won't if it doesn't, I'm going to stop trying, I'm just going to give up and let it be. I think that would probably raise the probability of it happening a great deal. Once you stop trying to get there, getting there is much easier. All of these things happen, these communications, these connections you're looking for, they all happen in an intuitive space. They all happen in the intuitive side of your mind. They don't happen in the intellectual side. The intellectual side will prohibit them. But that intuitive side, if if you don't trust it, then any, any information that comes in there, you kind of discard it. And often you'll discard it without even looking at it. Therefore nothing happens. It's not like you got the information and threw it away. You never even get it because you automatically discount it, discard it, throw it away. So stop trying so hard. Just have it in the back of your mind and it sure would be a, a neat thing. And you sure would like to have that happen, but. If it does, it does. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And that's okay. And, and quit trying. And perhaps that will allow
3: it to happen. But
2: it's, it's no doubt frustrating. No doubt. It's very, it's very frustrating. I know of any number of very left brain people, intellectual people, primarily, who have a similar issue. And I also know that many of them struggled with it and struggled with it for years. And then when they gave up, they had a breakthrough. And once they had the first breakthrough, then it starts pouring through like a, like a floodgates are opened, and they get all kinds of things. And to the point of being overwhelmed by it all, that typically happens as well.
3: So relax, let it go.
2: And if it doesn't come, it doesn't come. Accept that. It um, maybe next, Maybe next lifetime. I just say that not because I think it will maybe be in the next lifetime, but I think that will help you let go of it in this lifetime, to say that. And then just be open to it. Don't try to make it happen. Don't reach for it. Don't yearn for it. Don't say, oh, I want this. I need this. That all keeps it from happening. Just let it be, be open, and see what happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't accept that as well. Frustration's that, not good.
0: Would your advice for him be, if these floodgates of intuition and images did come in, to not analyze it, engage it, rather than analyze, would that
3: be yeah. something yeah, That
2: would be. That would be good, yes. Engage everything. Anything that comes in, even if it's silly. And if you've heard my my, uh, things I did on um, my intensives, then you've heard me say that, you know, engage everything, even silly things. But I think he's past that point. He's not even getting things to engage at this point. He's not really getting anything. And there's a part of his mind that discards things before he even gets to know that he's gotten the message. It's thrown out. And it does. It exists down in a deep level. Like I say, every person in that meeting knew that seeing without eyes was indeed possible because they had seen people doing it. They had talked to a man who was blind who could do it. So they knew it was possible. But that doesn't mean that at a deeper level, they could allow themselves to do it. Because as soon as a little flicker would come through and they'd see something, they'd immediately discount that as part of their imagination. There's there's that sensor that sits at the core of you someplace that uh, takes all your beliefs and censors everything accordingly. Same reason the scientists don't seem to be able to see a bigger picture. They get that little sensor sitting in there that uh, is trying to uphold all of their beliefs. Well, good luck. It's all I can say. Good luck. Give it up. Give it up and good luck.
0: Thank you and thank you for your question. Carolyn has a little follow-up follow-up question, Tom. You want to go ahead, Carolyn?
1: I I wanted to know if there's um if there's a good reason to manipulate people. Like can there be a low entropy choice to manipulate
4: someone?
2: Yeah, I suspect there could be, you know, a You try to get somebody to see something, so you give them a nudge. But the manipulation needs to be gentle. It needs to be a nudge, a way of 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 simply and easily, not some complex thing, not a story, you know, not a not not a long lie, not a not a uh, a you know, no tricks, no psychological tricks, things like that. But just nudging someone. Yes. So the manipulation is very gentle, and it's in the background. It's not in the foreground. So, for instance, let's say you have a friend, and that friend thinks that the larger, you know, conscious system is ridiculous. So you could occasionally bring up some little fact about it. Well, you know, from from this viewpoint of the of seeing consciousness is fundamental. You can derive physics better than physics can. No, oh, just a statement. Or, you know, I've done this myself. Or I know lots of people who have these experiences. Or just something. Not, a, not trying to manipulate and force them to agree with you, but just throwing out bits of facts and then letting them go. So that was what I'd call a very mild manipulation. It's manipulative in the sense that you're trying to help them see this bigger picture. You're making an effort, but you're not trying to trick them into it. You're not trying to to uh, lead them, you know, with a, with a ring in their nose, you know, lead them up to something. You're just pointing out things. You know, this and this, and you're not arguing. That might be... Dis- You know, it might be uh, looked at as a manipulation, but I think that sort of thing is fine. You know, you're trying to help people see a bigger reality by doing things, saying certain things, but you're not pushy. You're not
3: dragging them to the result.
2: You're encouraging them to find the result themselves. But that kind of manipulation is probably all right. You got a particular manipulation in mind? I suspect you do, and you've probably been doing it for years, and now you just want to know if it's all right.
1: <laughs> like, I, like, I just kind of realized that sometimes I say things that I don't mean. And, uh, like,
2: <laughs> that's probably not a good manipulation, though, saying things you don't mean. That falls in the category of lie, and that's probably not not good. Now, saying something like, of course, my dear, you look wonderful in that new dress, even if you don't really think that's true, that's also saying something that you don't mean, but it's purposeful in a sense you make somebody feel better, and that's fine. But to say something that's not true, just to get a reaction or just to get somebody to, to see it the way you want them to see it, that's manipulation that's not so fine. You should be more straightforward if you'd like them to see something rather than try to trick them into it by saying something that isn't true, better to just bring it out and say, here's what I think. Just lay it right out there rather than uh, be clever about it.
4: I had a bit of a follow-up because um, if someone wants, like many spiritual teachers really, um, I have this teaching of always speaking the truth. And um, I was always a little bit skeptical about that teaching. And one point, someone brought up like an imaginary situation. Like, let's say someone comes to you and asks you a question. Like, I think a situation he brought up was like, uh, let's say in World War II, you know, and you're hiding someone in your basement and they ask you, you know, are you hiding someone in your basement? And you know, that if you tell the truth, then you know, something, they're going to do something horrible. Whereas if you say a lie you say, no, I don't have anyone, then you could potentially save their life. So what would be a, like, obviously to me, the, the low entropy choice in that situation is to tell a lie. Mm-hmm. Do we agree, agree with that?
2: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, low entropy the low entropy choice is the right choice. That's how you define right and wrong. If it's the low entropy for the system, you know, it's not just necessarily for you personally, but in general, it's the the low entropy solution, then that is the right choice. Now, the matter of always telling the truth, that is not such a good idea. Now, I'm not really putting that in terms of telling the truth or telling a lie, but sometimes just not saying anything at all is the better choice. So you have to realize that if the world was populated by low-entropy people who were all very aware of everything, you know, they were very engaged and and, and extremely aware about all the facts of the world they understood, then – always telling the truth would probably be a really good idea. Most of the time would be a very good idea and you could live by that. But the fact is that people aren't that way. So if you say the truth, people will take that and not operate on it intellectually. Oh, here's a fact. You know, what does that mean? And what's your, you know, how does that play out? And what's the low entropy solution rather than doing that? People have stories, people have beliefs, people have their their self-centeredness, their ego, and that's how they'll interpret that truth you tell them. They'll interpret it through all of these dysfunctional modes, and it may turn out to be something ugly once they've interpreted it. You say, let's say, here's another one besides the, you know, is somebody hiding in your basement, you know, do you have a, you know, someone in your basement? You, it is not a good idea if, if you are in a movie theater that only has one door to get out and you see a little flicker of fire somewhere behind the stage to jump up and holler, fire, fire in the theater. Bad idea because probably 10 or 20 people will be trampled to death and there'll be a lot of injuries and deaths that if everybody just got up and walked out peacefully, nobody would get hurt, you see. So the truth here hurts people. You have to see what happens. Well, somebody who hears that, a lot of people who hear that, they take that data in with fear. And with that fear, they panic. And when they panic, they end up hurting themselves and a lot of other people. So you have to look at consequences of what you say. It's not only that what I say is the truth, therefore I'll always say it. It's what are the consequences of what I'm saying? And... That is part of your entropy computation, is the consequences of doing something or not doing something. So, yes, there are times when you do not shout out the truth. Now, in certain, in certain uh, limited circles, let's say you're just in a discussion group about such and such a thing, well, then that's kind of limited. And maybe everything you say there is the truth, and you could just make that a rule for everybody talking about it. But in life in general, you have to look at consequences. People will take that truth, and when it runs through their fear, something else may come out. For instance, I mentioned earlier that I only tell about, you know, maybe 15 20% of my experiences and asked to talk more about them I tend to refuse because I know if I tell you something and you have no experience, you will try to match it with something. You'll do a pattern match of your own. You'll try to imagine what that's like, and you'll come up to some kind of conclusion. And in your mind, however you interpret that data, that's what you'll think. Well, because you don't have the experience, there's about a 99.9% chance that what you come up with is wrong. It's not going to be that way. But that's what you'll make up. So by me telling you, okay, I'll just tell you the truth the way it happened, you're going to walk out with a lot of misconceptions in your mind because my words are just my best effort at trying to put the experience into words. And then your best effort of taking those words and turning them into what you think the experience was like, you see. So the probability, I'm just going to fill your head full of nonsense, By telling you my truth. So there's no point in that. It's a disservice to you. It's not a service to you. It's like, oh, well, now I know how how it is out there in in the great beyond, you know, outside the physical. This is the way it is. What you're imagining that I'm saying and what it leads to has to do with your beliefs. It has to do with all kinds of other things and fears. And it's just not likely to be true at all. So I'd better not just say anything rather than fill your head with nonsense. And there's no way you can interpret it without any experience. So I know it's going to be mostly nonsense because you you know, you know, can't help that. If you don't have the information to interpret it, then it's not going to work out very well. So often it's better just to keep your mouth shut and not share truth with people who aren't ready To process it in a positive way. Now, if everybody would say, "Oh, a fire in the theater," let's all file out calmly, and you know, with low entropy. Let's just do this as fast as possible. Then, fine. You could say, "Hey, there's a fire in the theater," and that would be a fine thing to say, a very good thing to say. Everybody would stand up, and they'd all get in line, and everybody would march out, and as many that could make it would make it, rather than a crowd at the at the door, and only 10% of the people who could have made it now make it. You see? So it depends. It depends. If your people are capable of processing that truth in a positive way, by all means, tell the truth. Anything else is not helpful. But if they're not capable of processing that in a positive way, then be a little careful what what you say. You're liable to create an emotional, fearful, belief-based reaction that is worse than saying nothing at all. So, that's my concept about the truth. You always tell the truth, always, no matter what, is just not a good idea. There are circumstances where that's just a the wrong thing to do because people won't process it in a positive way. They'll process it maybe in a panicked way or in some other way
4: so yeah i'm I'm really happy you clarified that so if my wife is very low entropy i can tell her that i don't like the dress but otherwise it's, it's good to tell a white lie
2: yes if she's very low entropy you can say well i, I don't think that doesn't work well with your skin color or it, it just doesn't seem this or that and you should be very honest if she says oh thank you because she'll be grateful that you told her that and she'll say well thank you i appreciate that i'll go Wear something else, or I'll do this, or I'll do that, or maybe I'll take the waist in with a belt. Does that improve it? You see, and you can work together to a solution. But if what you say is something like, no, that looks horrible, you know, now it's all negative. There is no positive. There's no way that that's helpful to anybody. There's nothing they can do with it. Maybe that's the truth of what you think, but it's just unhelpful. It's not leading toward a solution. It just makes somebody feel bad. And, you know, it's not a good idea. So it depends, yes, on whether the person can process it positively or whether they only process it negatively. In this case, your wife processes it as as something negative. Here she was, all dialed up, got these new clothes on and whatever. And you tell her it's horrible. And that's just depressing. That's awful. That hurts your, you know, it hurts your self esteem. That hurts in many ways. So it's a very negative thing to do. So, of course, you'd say, you look lovely, my dear. And you smile and you take her arm. And, of course, in your mind, you just do a little shift. And she is lovely because, you know, inside that dress, she's always lovely. And that's really what counts. So acting like she's lovely is easy because she is. You see, and the dress really doesn't matter that much. So that's the way to, to look at it. But if it's, if it's only negative, And if you say, well, I only meant it to be helpful, you know, but she's upset and angry. That just makes it worse. You know, it doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. Anything you can say will make it worse. So, no, not a good idea. But yes, if she would take it as a, as a helpful comment, Yes, by all means. So it depends on who you're talking to and what it is you think they think. You see? Now, you're guessing. How do you know what this other person's thinking? How do you know whether they'll take it well or not? Well, by time, if you spend a lot of time with them, you get to know those things just by trial and error. Otherwise, you have to guess. And it's always easy, better to guess on the side of positivity, not on the side of negativity so you just be careful do the best you can the better you know people the more you can share with them
4: okay thanks Tom that was very helpful
0: all right we have come to the end of this fireside chat unless anyone has another question um, we will wrap this up for today thank you everyone for joining thank you everyone for submitting your questions Oliver as always And Justin, who does all the editing on this. Thank you, Nathan, for returning after a few years to our fireside chat. And to Tina, who uh, this is the first experience in the fireside chat. Um, Thank you all. Great
3: questions. Thanks, everybody. It's been fun.
2: Tom Campbell here. I MBT Events hope you liked this video. We now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing, and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured, we will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.